ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What do Sam Kerr, Snoop Dogg and Kendall Jenner all have in common? Well, this week on Download This Show, they've all lent their personalities to Meta's new range of AI chatbots. So exactly how will these chatbots with personality work? Also on the show, ChatGPT, the online AI service, can now browse the internet in real time. Plus, the social media platform TikTok has launched its own e-commerce wing, TikTok Shop. But at least one government in the world has moved to block it. But why? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And a very big welcome to our guests this week, the co-founder of Patient Notes, Sarah Moran. It's been far too long. Far too long indeed. So happy to be here. And Jessica Sire, technology reporter with the AFR, the Australian Financial Review. Hi, how are you? It's lovely to have you back. Good to be here. All right. Who's ready to meet Meta's new AI chatbots? Meta, who, of course, the company behind Facebook and Instagram, uh, they've unveiled some chatbots, but chatbots with some slightly famous personalities. Walk me through this. They're rolling out this suite of products where you can chat with a celebrity-sounding bot. So you can chat with Kendall Jenner. I don't necessarily know what I'd ask Kendall Jenner, but um, they've sort of programmed these bots so that they can mimic the voice or the tone of somebody else and you can just sit and chat with them. Is Kendall Jenner the one who couldn't chop the yeah. the vegetable? I would ask for salad recipes from Kendall yeah. Jenner, just putting it out there. Yeah, she might know. Sarah, why is this a thing? Well, they're they're going they're leaning into the AI like everyone else, but their main chatbot is called Meta AI, um, and so it allows users to you know ask questions as they're doing things, like a little bit of a co-pilot, and yeah, it'll help them apparently with all the subjects like cooking advice and questions, but also for entertainment. So I imagine that the celebrity piece is about making it entertaining, uh, making it more human. So you reckon the celebrity thing is about kind of taking the creepy out of it, Sarah? Yes. I have strong thoughts about this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And this is why it's fun to have you on the show. (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg really needs help making things not creepy and not robotic. And so he's like, I have lots of cash. I will call my human friends and invite them along to the party. And so I really think that's what this is about. If if he's the face of chatbots, I think we're all in a bit of trouble. I love that you think he's friends with Kendall Jenner. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's something that if AI delivered to me, I'd be like, no, thank you. How much do we reckon the celebs are making out of this? Oh, heaps. It'd, it'd have to be heaps. I guess to some degree it's been an issue coming for a long time. It's, it's also been an issue in and around the recent writers and actors strikes that have happened in Hollywood, which is about what happens with your rights and movie studios and game developers and whatnot often want, you know, likeness rights for in perpetuity. I'm kind of curious about what people are negotiating here. What's in it for, you know, there's a footballer, Tom Brady, there's Snoop Dogg, like what's in it for them, Jess? I suppose there is like a a brand awareness thing for a new audience. Like these celebrities have their pockets of people who know who they are. So perhaps that's part of the strategy. I mean, it feels really like I'd I'd love to see one of these 
contracts. I'd love to see like <laughs> what data is being fed into the model so that it sounds like Snoop Dogg. Does he have control over what that information is or is it like stuff that exists in the public domain? And I'd love to see how long these bots can sort of exist because it's an identity thing, right? Like you're giving away the rights or rather you're licensing parts of your identity. Once upon a time we would have had dolls that mimicked people that said Woody from Toy Story is like, reach for the skies and if he was a real man then like his likeness is put into a doll, whereas now we have these bots that are like self-learning and can create, um, I don't know, maybe the identity changes over time. That's a really interesting point. Like this technology is, it's generative by its nature, which means that it's not just a bunch of recorded messages from a famous person. It will say something that this person has not yet said. And what kind of strictures would you put in place? Like the, the bot can say this, 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 and this. It can never say this. There would absolutely be clauses like that, wouldn't there, Sarah? Oh, 100%. I mean, we see that when people are licensing stock images or, you know, like that they can never be placed in certain places. Or if you sign an advertising agreement that ads won't be placed in certain places um, because you can't monetize it in that way. I think what's really fascinating about this is that from a business perspective, it's really smart for these people to be first to market with their own bots because those bots are going to exist anyway. Like we, we see that famous people are often imitated or there are, you know, um, parody accounts that spring up that that mimic these people anyway. And to Jess's point, there is so much content available in the public domain that could be used to train AI to represent these people anyway. Like, why not do it yourself and make money out of it? I think it's um, incredibly savvy to have that ownership and then you can build those clauses in. So being at the table allows you to say don't use this for pornography, don't use this in a way that's going to speak badly or damage my brand. Incredibly smart to, to be first in with this one. Do you think this is one of those sort of gateway drug things where people will start using it and then eventually become more comfortable? Because that, that would appear to be the underlying philosophy, Jess. Yeah, I was just thinking then I would like to set up Snoop Dogg so I can chat with him all day and then over time just develop this kind of like online relationship with my little Snoop bot. Um, and it's strange, like I would much prefer to do that than necessarily train the co-pilot helper, which I can see is like the strategy of most of these major tech companies is to develop the the virtual assistant. It's funny, it's like establishing a relationship with a pseudo person feels kind of metaverse It feels very like developing online avatars and a real crossover between my like existing identity and identities that exist in these online worlds. Well, it's also a bit of a shortcut, right? Because people already have, you know, like you see this when a famous person dies, right? There's mm. a sort of like a parasocial relationship you have where it's like you're sort of halfway there with that that relationship. And I wonder if that aids somewhat, Sarah, in kind of building the relationship you may or may not want with an AI. Yeah, and I think for those of you who don't know what a parasocial relationship is, it's this idea of a one-sided relationship that you have with a celebrity or or with media. Um, And I think we always look at it as being a bad thing. You know, it's like, oh, you know, this this one person doesn't even know that I exist and I am their biggest fan. Um, But you can also, this this seems to be leveraging that to the positive. Um, So with uh, Girl Geek Academy, which is uh, one of the things that I work on, we actually started doing this. So we worked with Microsoft to start training um, an AI to scale Girl Geek Academy. It's like, how do you take our voice and how do you take the way that we present material 
and put that as a layer over the the things that we're trying to teach. So if someone wants to learn to code, the way that someone might teach it might sound a certain way, but the way that Sarah teaches it sounds completely different. And so if you're in class and you need to learn maths, heck yeah, sign me up to hear how Kendall Jenner's going to run my maths class. Like I would love to learn that way. Not like maybe, Um, (laughs) but I might be a bit of girl maths thrown in there. But um, I I think that that's a, a really important thing to think about. Well, what are the positive ways that we could use this to relate with people and allow them to access information? Out of curiosity, Sarah, how did the AI go? Like, what was the end result of that process? I mean, all of these tools are so new. Like, they're (laughs) bringing out new tools every week. And so I guess the hardest part is that when you build an iteration, that it's outdated so quickly. And so it kind of, it makes it hard to invest because you think you're investing in something that's going to be so flashy, so new. (laughs) And then two weeks later, people go, oh, yeah, duh, that's like so old. (laughs) So when you're dealing with young people... Was that you doing Kendall Jenner then? Because that felt like like perilously close to Kendall Jenner. (laughs) Yeah, look. One of the great developments about this stuff is that it's open source as well. Like in Mm. doing what Sarah and the guys at Girl Geek have been doing, like experimenting with the technology for their own ends. Like, I mean, sure, maybe in a couple of weeks it might feel like it's outdated, but this is the most exciting part is that you can experiment. I mean, you guys have done it through a partnership with Microsoft, but I mean, this meta stuff is all open source. So people can start to build their own bots and and use a lot of the training data that um, Meta's put together, which uh, I think is just very cool. Uh, Stick around because a little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking about how to spot AI images. Uh, There's been a very interesting use of it uh, in the media over the last couple of weeks. We'll talk more about that in a sec. Right now, though, you are listening to uh, Sarah Moran, co-founder of Patient Notes, and Jessica Sire, technology reporter with the Australian Financial Review. This is Download This Show, and we're on a bit of an AI tear at the moment. ChatGPT, which has become very well known as uh, an AI service, which will kind of mimic different writing styles and, you know, clean up your grammar and all kinds of things, particularly around the, the world of writing, can now scan the internet, Sarah? That doesn't feel Skynet-y at all. Talk to me what's happened. Well, it also feels like it's overselling it to me. But um, so the way that ChatGPT has worked up until now is it was based off a large language model trained that had only been connected to the internet till September 2021. Um, so anything after that or newer than that, including a lot of the AI tools itself, ChatGPT doesn't know. It hasn't been trained on that in terms of information. And so what this is doing is it's allowing ChatGPT to connect to the internet and to be able to reach reach for that information that it doesn't have in its database already. To me, though, I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic about it. Have they said anything that's given them any consideration for what happens when ChatGPT is faced with the fire hose all of us have to deal with with the internet? That was my initial thought. It was like, oh, great, now I can surf the internet? That's cool. At least it's got information that's current or maybe it has methods of um, managing the Google or rather Bing um, indexation pages in a way that I can't. Do you remember a couple of years ago there was a story where, uh, and this was years ago, Microsoft set up an AI and it it immediately became a white supremacist racist. Yeah, yeah. Because it was exposed to the internet. That's a very truncated version of the story. There's a little part of me that's just like, if you give it uncontrolled access to the cesspool of the internet, what will it become? Absolutely. It's funny to hear you both reflect because... I tend to think of this as being more like you've got this great powerful tool in OpenAI and then you're stuck on a slow Bing search on the end. So, (laughs) like, it's 
because what first comes to mind is that, oh, great, now the whole internet is in ChatGPT. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, right? But no. So the way it works is ChatGPT has, so it's a large language model. It has been trained on so many words, bajillions of words, but it doesn't now be trained on the rest of the words that it missed out on since September 2021. So it it then just tacks that on, right? Like it's just, it can do a little search. And I say little very specifically because the way these tools work is that they're based on tokens. And so you get a certain amount of tokens that you can use uh, within a context window um, and it maxes out at 8,096 tokens. Um, So to get very technically specific, uh, 1,000 tokens is about 750 words. And so you kind of have limits on how much it can actually be searching. Uh, And then also after that point, it gets lost. So if you've if you've hammered chat GPT like I have, you know, if you put too much information in there, it kind of, it doesn't quite know what it's talking about itself anymore. <laughs> and so it gets harder and harder to use, which is just very, very complex and annoying. So literally like me at the end of a long day, I'm like, I don't yes. know what I'm saying. <laughs> don't ask me things involving facts. That's exactly how it is. Are you, are you chat GPT in disguise? I tell you. Uh, I could be. <laughs> I could be. You mentioned earlier Bing. So it is using Microsoft's uh, search engine Bing to search the internet. Is that right, Jess? As I understand it, yeah, that's the partnership. So this will be the most use Bing has ever gotten in the life of Bing. This (laughs) is going to give Bing a reason to exist. Well, I think it's like the the meta partnership is with Bing as well and so is this chat GPT thing. So I think you can see Microsoft's strategy here. Yeah, we've given up on humans and now we have a search engine just for AI. They spent years selling Bing as like the alternative to Google. There was placement in movies and things like that. Unless it was sort of baked into your computer when you bought it, people didn't really use it. It's definitely like a a search for the Microsoft products. So Mm. a lot of their development was based off Bing um, as opposed to like Google, for instance, and Microsoft has been looking for a way to compete with Google on on search as one thing, but also on AI as another. So, are they right? Is this is this going to be the the thing that finally makes Bing sort of a viable product? Oh, I just don't think we'll actually know it's using Bing. Like, I I don't think that it'll redirect us to Bing. I think Bing will become like the enterprise search engine. You know, it's like powering things in the background, um, and us as users won't know that Bing is the thing behind it. Um, Totally. And I think like that's from a like strategic point of view, I think that's really smart from Microsoft's like strategy. Going B2B is obviously is a lot easier um, and a lot more lucrative generally over time. Um, one of the issues with ChatGPT, and it's become quite apparent as, as more people have gotten online and sort of tested its limits to your point earlier, Sarah, is that it's great at sounding confident. It's less great at being right. Is there a sense that giving it um, access to the wider internet, a current internet, might solve that problem, Sarah? I mean, it's an illusion, uh, you know, and it's something to aim for. I think we have to remember that in terms of how old this technology is, these are just little toddlers, uh, if they're even up and walking. So that connection is great. I think we'll learn a lot from having it. But out of the box, it is it doesn't suddenly make things accurate or true or up to date that accuracy is still in question. And I think that's that really highlights the role that humans play in the use of AI. 
One of the remarkable things I've noticed definitely in the last like six months talking about this chat GPT stuff with as many people as possible is like the user awareness of the inaccuracy of the tool is like red hot. Every user knows that chat GPT could be wrong. And I think that it's such an interesting training ground for humans mm. to interact with this technology because, okay, the tech could be wrong and so how do I query it in a way for it to, one, give me something that's accurate and how do I develop really fast fact-checking uh, models for myself to get the most out of this thing? And I just think that's such a good way to go about its mass adoption I, it's fine. I haven't had this like level of media literacy, media, you know, critical thinking since the early days of things like Wikipedia, where people sort of did the same thing. They were like, Wikipedia is great. Don't trust it. But I think it's possible Google got so good at giving us information that we came to trust it more. Whereas yeah. I think this kind of throws back to an earlier era of the internet in a way we were a bit like, uh, I might just double check that. Yeah. I think demographically people um, talk about Generation Z and the way that young people are digitally literate and fluent. And one of the things that I've observed is their, like, uh, their media literacy or their their critical thinking when it comes to stuff on the internet is so fine-tuned. Mm. Like they are cynical, sceptical about everything they read online. It's the boomers and things that we kind of got to worry about when it comes to media consumption. And to your point about media literacy, I think that the young generations who are growing up with these tools have an inbuilt radar, I think. And the advent of ChatGPT and the way that people interact with it is um, is fine-tuning that. Sarah, you must have seen this in spades over the years with GirlGate. Yeah, and I I think... To, to Jess's point about uh, the younger generation, it's both true and untrue. There is still a digital divide that happens with young people because it can be manipulated. And I think that's where the dangerous part happens. You know, it's like hacking the algorithm, Like, but you're hacking the algorithm of how people determine what is true and what isn't. And I think right now in this time, uh, we're seeing a lot of that really take off. It's um, And that's where the risk is, right? Uh, and so ChatGPT are the first people to come out and say, hey, our stuff isn't going to be accurate. It's up to you to test. Like, it's up for you to check those things. But then there's not really that extra layer built in, which is that media literacy. So, well, well, how do I check if something is accurate or not? And I think it's been the case, gosh, since I was a young person, that we don't teach that. And it's also really hard to keep media literacy up to date with all the trends as they move. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Earlier in the show, we were talking about AI, which seems to be a weekly occurrence at the moment. Hey, this is what's happening. But I I tease this idea of can you actually pick an AI picture? Because the AFR produced its power list and uh, I'm guessing access to people like Lachlan Murdoch was a bit hard Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there's a whole bunch of images in there that are of these of these people that made the list that are AI generated Mm -hmm. what was and I know that I'm not necessarily saying you were responsible for this decision but it seems silly not to ask you because you're here totally what was the logic of it I think it was just to explore this use this technology and see what you could do with it creatively. I mean, notwithstanding that, yeah, getting access to Lachlan Murdoch's or Sam Kerr at this time is easy. <laughs> um, but it was just like 
AI was driving every single business decision, every investment decision over the last 12 months has been like pe- boards are talking about, it, investors are talking about it, stock prices are going bananas over companies that used to be blockchain companies are all of a sudden AI <laughs> companies now. And it was just like this was part of the zeitgeist and all right, well, if it's part of the zeitgeist and we're talking about power and AI as a powerful force in Australia, well, what's sort of like a subversive way that we could <laughs> use this technology to, um, to illustrate at least the people in our power list. How quickly did people pick it? Well, pretty quickly, I think. I mean, <laughs> some of the hands are pretty pretty mangled if you look pretty closely. I think, and also like the AFI was at pains to say this is an AI-generated image yes. because there are not necessarily clear guidelines around what you can and can't do with image-based uh, AI at the moment. Um but yeah, I mean, some some of them look great, and some of them are like, "Huh, there's something really off about that person." So this is becoming, a re- and, and yes, of course, the AFR were very very clear about pointing it out. But I also think there's been plenty of issues we've seen recently where images have proliferated online where it's not as clear, right? And if you're not attuned for it, it is actually getting quite hard to tell some of these images apart. So let's do AI 101. If you're looking at a picture, what's the first thing, Sarah, that you look for to go? Oh, are you real? How many fingers does the person have? That is absolutely the first test. Um, and are they sitting in a natural pose or are they half missing their fingers? So for some reason, we I actually don't know why, AI is terrible at being able to draw hands. So if someone's hands is behind their back or they're hidden in some way, that may be a tip off that it might be an AI generated image. Why is it that AI can't do hands? It doesn't seem like, of all the things, it doesn't seem like the most complicated part. You know, it's peculiar talking with um, the creative director at the AFR magazine about this process. So they worked with uh, an AI artist and he's got all these different images and a set of scenes that he's trying to basically blend together. But he is programming his uh, creative bot to spit out an image. So at like the the first iteration looks nothing like Anthony Albanese on the decks, for example. Mm. The second one, he sort of like told it to do, yeah, put its uh, his eyes closer together, but also do this with his hands. But when you input that code into the machine, it it sometimes breaks or spits out some crazy stuff. So what's really funny is you look at the the iterations in between of these um, of these images, and like Anthony's Albanese's ear might just have shot right off, and you're just not really sure like where in the code base that <laughs> bug is. So um, it's actually like quite a painstaking process to get um, to to get AI to to make images like real people. It's also like fascinating that that AI prompts has become its own industry. Like in the last couple of months, it's become a whole new skill set. And I I guess one of the things I'm fascinated by is in in that process, like are there particular tricks that you think people should know? Oh, well, look, as a prompt guru, I'm very good at generating images and uh, the most convincing are actually my own. And the ones that weren't so good uh, really highlighted where some of these issues come about. So my teeth, so mangled, very, very terrible. Um, but to Jess's point, you know, or to, to all of our point, I think what really underpins this is what prompts are you using to be able to generate the, the content? And I think, you know, for all of the stories we've talked about today, that there is this underlying thing about 
the next stage is us being prompt ready, really getting our um, heads around how do we, because uh, we're observing this tech, even as builders of the technology. So at our company where we're using this stuff to build, we're observing what gets spat out the other end and then having to figure out prompts to turn it around and also to stop the AI from hallucinating. So this idea of it just makes stuff up. You're like, I didn't prompt that and I don't know where you got that from, but hey, go for it, AI. (laughs) So it's, you know, fun days, fun times. Well, hopefully after this you'll be able to identify AI photos uh, from now until the time they get much better, which is probably going to happen by the time we get out of the studio. Uh, Video sharing service TikTok, of course, has become massive over the last couple of years, but it would also like to become an e-commerce platform. What does that mean? Basically, you can pay with it. Interesting news out of Indonesia, Jess, that Indonesia have, which has, you know, quite a significant TikTok user base, has stepped in and gone, actually, no, we don't want you to use this to pay. Talk me through this. Yeah, the Indonesian government's basically put in a law restricting TikTok shop from uh, accessing its entire Population. They basically said we want to protect our our real life stores and our offline merchants, and so we've put these restrictions around the TikTok's e commerce platform. There's things like products that are imported from overseas need a base price of at least one hundred dollars, which is significant when you're buying things uh, online. Uh, and TikTok, I mean, has already invested billions of dollars in establishing a pretty like solid presence in Indonesia. I think there's like 125 million people use TikTok in Indonesia and they're rolling out TikTok shop and the government's basically said, we're going to put parameters on uh, the commercial access you have to our population. Sarah, why would Indonesia not want this app to kind of follow that pathway that so many Chinese social media apps do, which is they're sort of like these all-purpose, live your life, pay for your life online uh, services? Well, what I've taken from it is that there is an intent to protect uh, offline merchants as well uh, and their marketplaces that already exist from predatory pricing. So if you think about what happens if you've suddenly got 125 million users that all can become sellers and merchants in one go, what happens to your current existing economic infrastructure? Um, It can really put it under threat in a way that potentially other things haven't before. I think also one of the the huge risks that the government's probably trying to protect against, and this is obviously an an issue when we talk about globalisation and monopolies setting up in different markets, is they're trying to protect the value chain that already exists in Indonesia, right? So if you've got like a super app which has e-commerce, payments, communications, like that's three major uh, verticals within Indonesia that is is all of a sudden competing with this Chinese company. And if the product, uh, if the TikTok shop or the TikTok app or super app is more convenient, easier to use and more reliable than the existing government infrastructure, uh, then people will choose that. And it's been a huge risk uh, for currencies, for for governments for ages. Like when the idea of, do you remember when Facebook wanted to bring out Libra, that current like sort of. They experimented so many times with like Facebook credits and then Libra and all these different ways of doing currency. And the US government was really not into that idea because what if it became easier to pay your staff in Libra on this you know, platform and they could buy enough stuff with Libra, they just stop using the US dollar and that debases the currency of an entire economy and that's a serious problem. Do you know what it strikes me, Sarah? It's like the governments around the world are learning the lessons of watching cryptocurrencies. So the last 100%. couple of... 100%. Yeah, they're trying to get ahead of it uh, and I, th- I think it is a, a real risk that 
you know, you're talking about a global company who has a big opportunity to manipulate things, um, including the value of any of that currency at any particular time. And they've probably been thinking about it and planning about it for, for a long time as a country that's been subjected to US uh, and, and other foreign apps coming in. You know, they would have seen the impact of things like Airbnb and other sorts of players coming into the market. I think this has been part of their strategy for a while is to think about standing up to it. And with that, I shall leave you. Huge thank you to our guest this week, Jessica Sire from the Australian Financial Review, purveyors of AI powerful people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank Thanks you. very much. The pleasure was entirely ours. And Sarah Moran from Patient Notes, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's it for the show. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.